Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll be taking uh, just about a half an hour to work through uh, the next text of Scripture with you before we celebrate together in the Lord's table. I invite you to grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one provided for you in the seat right in front of you. You can look and find a Bible there. That'll be very important for what we're going to be doing today. And then if you need a handout, uh, there should be one in your bulletin. You can follow along that way. It will be helpful, I think, uh, just to kind of keep you on track. And then uh, if you uh, are following with an electronic device, I did email this out, the handouts out to you, so you can follow along that way as well. In 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, uh, Paul brings up three matters that were problems in Corinth. Uh, we've been uh, taking some time to work through each one of these, but in chapter 5, he starts with the problem of immorality. He then uh, describes the fact that some of the Corinthian church were actually arrogant or proud. And then a few weeks ago in chapter 6, we saw that Paul also deals with the problem of greed. Some of the Corinthians were so greedy, they were insisting upon their own rights in the law courts, and they were torpedoing Christ's testimony before the lost. Well, in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, Paul's not done dealing with these three problems, but he returns to the first problem, the problem of immorality, and he gives us a, another way of looking at this, or he, he talks about another demonstration of this sin in the Corinthian assembly. And what becomes obvious if you just look down through these verses is that some Corinthian believers were, uh, were arguing that they could use their bodies in any way that they wanted. Matter of fact, many of the translations will put quotation marks at various points uh, from verses 12 through 20 uh, down throughout here because they're suggesting that Paul is giving some Corinthian slogans. Some of the things the Corinthians had written to him in a letter that Paul was aware of regarding immorality. These were statements or views that the Corinthian believers felt were true about their bodies and their own rights with their bodies. As I was working through the sermon last night in this text with some seminary students in my office, one of them reminded me of a current American slogan that can be used about, uh, can justify a person's rights with their body. The American slogan is, my body, my choice. Have you heard of that before? My body, my choice. And indeed, that statement could summarize the views of the Corinthians that we're going to look at today. But Paul counteracts that idea or view by making a statement something like this, my body, Christ's choice in this text. And so we'll work quickly through the text. Paul starts by rejecting their views about immorality in verses 12 through 14. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Here Paul starts in verses 12 and 13 by qualifying and rejecting their views about the body or their slogans. That's the blank if you're looking for a blank. Uh, for letter A, he rejects and qualifies Corinthian slogans. 
in verse 12, it appears right at the very beginning that some of the Corinthians were arguing, all things are lawful for me. This is a phrase he uses twice in verse 12. It's a phrase he also uses repeatedly, uh, two times I should say, in chapter 10 later on. This is something the Corinthians were saying. Paul, all things are lawful for me. But what does that phrase mean, right? What does that mean? Well, some have suggested throughout the years that that phrase, all things are lawful, means that the Corinthians just had this open appeal to moral license. They could do whatever they wanted. But uh, there are perhaps other ways of looking at that little phrase, all things are lawful. Others believe that Paul is restating a Corinthian slogan, Corinthians said this, but that he rejects it or qualifies it. So it may be that the Corinthians held this. And, And if this is true, you would translate it something like this. You say, all things are lawful for me, but I say, all things are not helpful. You, Corinthians, say, all things are lawful for me, but I say, I will not be enslaved by anything. So it may be that their Corinthian slogans about the Corinthians just enjoying freedoms, but there's another way of looking at the phrase I think is even better, and that is that Paul is stating that believers are not under the law of Moses. All things are lawful for me might be Paul's way of acknowledging the fact that believers are no longer under the law of Moses. I mean, think about what you know about the book of Romans. In Romans, Paul says that we are not under the law. And what law is he talking about there? The Mosaic law. When he says all things are lawful for me, he might be saying technically we're not under the law of Moses. He also says in Romans that we are dead to the law. The law is dead to us. So this might be his way of saying it in Corinthian or in the Corinthian epistles. So this might be a Corinthian slogan that Paul foundationally agrees with. But then he gives them a few things to think about in verse 12 and verse 13. He replies to their statement, all things are lawful for me, first of all with this statement, but all things are not helpful. And I think the point that he's simply making there is he's qualifying their statement says, yes, but not everything that you can be involved in in your life will actually benefit you or produce good in your life. He's de- describing ourselves here. And so one of the things we should learn from the middle of verse 12 is we should ask ourselves in our lives when we are engaging in a practice or a habit Is this practice moving me forward in my walk for Christ? Perhaps another important question to ask is, does this practice or habit in my life have the potential to do damage in my walk with Christ? So Paul's first statement is, yes, but all things are not helpful or beneficial to me as a believer, to you, Corinthians, as a believer. He then responds in the the end of verse 12 uh, with another statement. He says, all things are lawful for me, but then he says, look, the very end of verse 12 in your Bible, he says, but I will not be enslaved by anything. That's an important statement here as well. Paul's response is that believers must not allow anything to enslave them. We must not be mastered by anything. 
And then in my opinion, what he does in verse 13 is he explains exactly what had mastered or enslaved some of the Corinthian believers. Some of the ones who were arguing, all things are lawful for me. I think Paul puts his finger on an issue and he says, yes, but some of you are enslaved. So look in your Bible at verse 13. It says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Most translations and scholars here take the first part of verse 13 as another slogan from the Corinthians. This is what they were saying. The debate here, though, is about where the slogan ends. When I overviewed this book with you several months ago, I encouraged you to write a note in your Bible. Now, if you followed that pastoral encouragement, you would know exactly what I think about verse 13. But, but just in case you've forgotten, some people take it like the ESV translates it here, and they put quotation marks around the phrase, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is what the Corinthians were saying. But it, it makes better sense to say that the Corinthians also made the statement right after that. And so what I told you to do in your Bibles is to get rid of the final quotation mark and to keep the quotation open till the end of the next statement. So the Corinthians were saying, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. God will destroy both stomachs and bodies, end quote. Okay, you got it? You wrote the quotation marks in there this time, right? Not many of you wrote it, so you must have written it last time, several months ago, right? Okay, this is how the Corinthians were arguing. They did not believe that the body continued on. And so they were arguing from a physical level. God gave us bellies for the enjoyment of food so we can do whatever we want with our belly. We can eat whatever we want for our own enjoyment. But they were taking that physical appetite and they were extending it into the moral arena. For just as God gave us a stomach for food, he also gave us other features of our own anatomy for our own sexual enjoyment. That's what the Corinthians are arguing. And notice how Paul responds to that concept. He directly contradicts the way they're taking the freedom from the law of Moses here. And they're thinking. And he reminds them, look at the end of verse uh, 13, that their bodies are not for sexual immorality, but they are for the Lord and the Lord for the body. To be honest with you, those last two phrases have perplexed me throughout the years. I mean, I've like taught on this text multiple times. And when I get to those two phrases, the body is for the Lord. That, that makes sense. My physical body as a New Testament believer in Jesus Christ is for Jesus. But then the next phrase has been perplexing to me. What does it mean when it says that the Lord is for my body, the body? And uh, so I want to suggest that what I think Paul is doing here is he's introducing a concept that he's going to run with the rest of the text. And that is our union with Jesus He's introducing it with, with a metaphor. I think the metaphor is the metaphor of marriage. And so what, what Paul is doing with those last two phrases is he's using the concept of a marriage in the way that a bride is to be singularly devoted to her husband. 
and the way the husband is to be devoted to his wife. That's the believer's relationship with Jesus Christ. I am his alone. He is mine alone. And so I cannot get involved with sexual immorality. And so uh, he gives this illustration here, I think, to say it's like, it's like saying when people get married, they're devoted entirely to their spouse alone, and their spouse is theirs alone as well. Believers are to be mastered by one pursuit, one person, Jesus. Not sexual immorality. And so then in verse 14, I think that he corrects a Corinthian error. So you might ask yourself, well, why would the Corinthians actually argue, I can do whatever I want with my physical body, it doesn't really matter. I think Paul implies it in verse 14 when he reminds them that our bodies will be resurrected as Jesus was resurrected. Some of the Corinthians believed that they could do whatever they wanted with their bodies. You know, my body, my choice, because they felt that the body would only exist in this life. So I think what Paul is telling them in the text in verses 12, 13, and 14 is something like this. You know what? You're right about meat not making it through the great upheaval until we see Jesus, but you're wrong about your body. Your body will be resurrected. But Paul is not done dealing with the theological error of the Corinthians or their immoral problems. And it's actually to our advantage that he continues Perhaps you find yourself enslaved this morning to some physical appetite, to immoral impulses, and you feel mastered. Perhaps you feel licensed to do whatever you want with your body. Paul continues here by giving three reasons why believers must control their bodies. And I would encourage each one of you, take careful notes of these three reasons. And I can go through them quickly, but these are life-changing, life-freeing, freeing from sin sort of stuff, if you actually believe it. If you actually believe it. These three arguments are, it's just beautiful how Paul writes it. They're structured so wonderfully. If you, if you notice in verse 15 in your Bible, Paul starts out with a, a do you not know question. Okay, then you look at verse 16 in your Bible and he says, or do you not know? He gives that same question. He repeats the beginning of the same question in verse 16 to start the second reason or argument. See, the questions start the arguments. There's one in verse 15, there's one in verse 16 through 18, and then if you look in verse 19, or do you not know? I mean, have you ever seen that in your Bible? So he structures it in this way, and he gives these initial questions that are to compel the Corinthians to consider their practice, and then he gives the same pattern. It goes question, explanation, like a note or another question, and then a final response. And his final responses, men and women, are shocking and moving. It's very strong language. So let's look at the first reason, reason number one, why believers must control their physical, or must control their bodies, is because our union with Christ forbids 
immoral acts. Look in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? That's the question. Gives this explanatory question that follows. Should I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Here in his first question, he assumes the previous metaphor of marriage, and he adds to that here another metaphor of, just transparently speaking, of body parts. The metaphor pictures individual believers as body parts of Christ. You are members or parts of Christ. And then he asks, he asks why the Corinthians would feel the freedom to uh, in, in, engage with temple prostitutes. And this is a very serious conversation, is it not? The city of Corinth was infamous for its problems with prostitution in Paul's day. So Paul asked some of the Corinthians whether we should take the body parts of Christ, our bodies, and join them to the members of a harlot. And in response, see his strong reply. I mean, could it get any stronger when in verse 15, he gives a one-word answer. It's really two words in Greek that he uses frequently. It's, it's never. Or may that never be. I mean, Paul saves this expression for things that are utterly unthinkable. I mean, can you take the, the body of Christ and join it with a prostitute? No way. May that never be, God forbid, even the possibility of such a grossly inappropriate act was grievous to Paul. You see, our union with Jesus Christ absolutely forbids our participation with prostitutes or other immoral acts like that. And men and women, if we just really believed what we say we believe, about being unified with Christ, we would walk away from sexual temptation. Don't get me wrong, I do believe in accountability as being a real help to people who struggle in areas of moral temptation. Being transparent enough to open up yourself and, and go to another brother, another sister in the assembly, or your spouse, and Admit where the weaknesses are and the shortcomings. I think accountability can really help you, but I think what Paul is pointing to here is the great accountability of knowing that we are unified to Jesus. Can I take Christ members and join them to a prophet? No, my body is for Christ. I cannot do this. Reason number two. Reason number two is verses 16 through 18. And here he shows us that uh, the, the reason clearly stated would be this, immorality affects our body or damages our body. We come to some very interesting verses. Look in verse 16, or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So we go quickly through this. This one will will take just a minute or two longer here. But the opening question, Paul suggests that Corinthians know that a physical union brings some sort of lasting bond between the two partners. The, The idea is that after the physical act of fornication... Neither person is entirely free of the other. This is what he's saying in verse 16. And then he grounds that statement or belief in the Scripture. It's not like just Paul came up with this. But he appeals to Genesis 2 and verse 24 that teaches that two will become one flesh. It's what Moses said, what God said. In the Pentateuch, his point is that a lasting union, union is formed through intimacy, even if done in a fleeting way. I don't pretend to understand all of this, but that's what the text is saying. Don't you know that if you join with a prostitute, you become one with her? I mean, that's a, that's a very profound or powerful statement. And his final response comes at the beginning of verse 18. He says, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. This is another strong admonition. Now, Paul follows that admonition up at the end of verse 18 with a, with a, a statement that has, uh, you, you know, I said before, you know, something perplexed me in the past. I think I got that one. This one was like even harder. Okay, so I've like spent tens of hours on the end of verse 18 and trying to understand. I'm going to do it in two minutes with you, okay? Two minutes. What does this statement mean when Paul says every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? There are two basic approaches. It might be that Paul is teaching, and I I just put these right in your notes because I knew I'd be running out of time, so I just put them right in there. He might be saying that immorality is an exceptional sin. That is, or, or in other words, There's something about immorality that makes it unique in its capacity to damage our physical bodies. And so this view is accurately reflected uh, very well in the ESV. The ESV actually supplies a word, the word other here. Every other sin. Okay, the word other is not in the original, but they provide this every other sin. And, And so the ESV translators take it this way. Okay, the clear implication is that sexual sin somehow damages one's physical body in a way that other sins do not. If you take it this way. Gave you, just in case you think I'm like crazy to say this, I give you a few people who actually take it this way. David Garland, you can see it right in the, the black box in your notes. David Garland says, sexual sin is deemed particularly destructive because it creates the greatest damage to a person. That's how Garland takes it. John Calvin also said, other sins do not leave the same filthy stain on our bodies as fornication does. In other words, if we take it this way, immorality is a self-destructive sin and believers must flee it. To be honest with you, this is the way most people take this verse. Verse 18. Now, I struggle with it. So I I don't particularly hold this because I think that there are other sins that seem to directly damage our physical bodies. 
things like drug abuse. You could make the case for gluttony, right? Or laziness. See, for me, there seem to be other sins that affect the physical body as well. I'm not just isolating immorality as one all by itself that damages the body. I think there are other sins, and so I take it according to the second idea there. Paul corrects another Corinthian statement by saying that immorality is a sin against the body. Okay, so the other way you could take this is you could just, if you've got an ESV, you could just take a line, put it through the word other that those translators put in there anyway, and then put quotation marks around it. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. Or uh, this is how the Corinthians were arguing. Every sin is like uh, outside of the body. It doesn't affect the body. But then Paul's reply comes in the very next statement. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So I don't believe that Paul's suggesting here that immorality is uniquely destructive. But he is suggesting that it is destructive. So when we are tempted to fall into immorality, one of the things that we should think, according to the Apostle Paul, is don't do it. Walk away. Why? Because this will damage my physical body. It's one of the arguments he gives here. Immorality damages your body. Let's close by looking at verses 19 and 20 in the third reason. Third reason could be stated like this. Since believers' bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we cannot use them for our own selfish pleasure. Let me just read it and I'll make a few comments. Verse 19. Or do you not know that the body, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Because that initial question, he's talking about our individual physical bodies. Don't you know that the Holy Spirit dwells within you? Your body is the Spirit of God's temple. And he adds to an explanatory note, you are not your own for your bought with price. Not only did Christ create you, he redeemed you at the, the price of the blood of Jesus. That's the explanatory comment. And then notice his final response. So, glorify God with your body. End. Final, powerful statement. Paul's final response is we must glorify God with our bodies. We must assign dignity or worth to God through the appropriate use of our bodies. Last week, Kirk Leiner said he gave a definition of glorifying God. Remember that? And so stealing his definition, we must give others a proper impression of God with our bodies. Paul's three responses are quite strong. May it never be. Flee immorality. Glorify God with your body. Men and women, this morning we had a very serious conversation. It's a text that talks about the Corinthian believers and temple prostitutes. But we are faced with our own moral temptations all around us. In a moment of application, I'd like to close in this way. Our moral temptations might be different from what they faced in ancient Corinth. We might not be confronted 
by a prostitute on the streets. But perhaps we are in our mind. She might not attempt to allure us in her idol temple, but evil women spin their seductive, damning webs in our homes, in our workplaces, and through just about every possible means of communication that you could imagine. Satan tempts believers in our culture today in many new and damning ways. I mean, internet pornography alone destroys tens of thousands of Christians and their homes. It corrupts our values and the purity of many believers. And what I'm asking you to do this morning is I'm asking you to really believe what Paul says is here. He reasons. You must not engage in immoral acts because we're in union with Jesus. We must not do this because immorality damages our physical bodies. And we can't do it because we have the Holy Spirit of God within us at all times. So when we engage in these levels of sin, it greatly grieves the Spirit of God. It's one thing, men and women, to say these things, to write them down. It's a whole nother thing to believe them when you're all alone by yourself. If we could just believe in the great accountability of my relationship with Jesus and my relationship to the Holy Spirit, who is always there with me, it would change the way many of us live our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the perfect and completed work of Jesus Christ that covers all of our sin. We thank you for his grace, for your grace, that empowers us and strengthens us. And Lord, at this moment, before we go to the Lord's table, I would specifically beseech you on behalf of anyone here who feels enslaved or mastered by some particular sin or desire. Lord, for your glory, for your honor, would you allow these men and women the ability to believe that we are in union with Jesus. We're one. And that changes everything about the way I live my life. Would you allow them to believe in those moments of temptation? They might perhaps feel all alone that they're not, but that your spirit indwells them. Might they believe that? Lord, increase our faith for your honor and your glory. May we represent you 
in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.